The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on his strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Your throne is established from old. You are from everlasting. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring. Mightier than the thunders of many waters. Mightier than the waves of the sea. The Lord on high is mighty. Your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. That's Psalm 93, which along with Psalm 96 are the psalms appointed for today, Thursday, September the 8th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. I appreciate it. We are continuing a look at the book of Job. Today we're going to be in chapter 31, the first 23 verses there, in John's Gospel, chapter 11, verses 17 to 29, and in the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 15, verses 1 to 11. So um, Job is continuing to plead his case. Here he's going to give his virtues, essentially, is the way that he's going to present his case of all that he has done. He said, I've made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? In other words, he's taken seriously the whole idea of um, committing adultery by, by lingering in looking on another. He, he said, so I've made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? What would be my portion from God above and my heritage from the Almighty on high? Is not calamity for the unrighteousness and disaster for the workers of iniquity? Does he not see my ways and number all my steps? In other words, he says, you know, I, I took so seriously the whole idea of committing adultery that, that he's actually holding himself to the standard Jesus says that we should hold ourselves to, that, that we should... To look on another with lust is adultery. And so here he says, no, 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 I've not even done that. But he's still getting this thing wrong, this whole karma deal. It is not calamity for the unrighteous and disaster for the workers of iniquity. In other words, this is the way it works, right? If if I did that thing, then I would expect this. But I didn't, so I shouldn't expect this. Therefore, I shouldn't actually have to experience this. If I've walked with falsehood and my foot is hastened to deceit, let me be weighed in a just balance and let God know my integrity. If my step has turned aside from the way and my heart has gone after my eyes, and if any spot has stuck to my hands, then let me sow and another eat and let what grow for me be rooted out. In other words, if I've done all these things, again, then then I understand that I could sow and another person eat what I have sown. If I had done all the things that I just listed, if my heart had been enticed toward a woman, and I have lain and waited at my neighbor's door, in other words, if I've coveted my neighbor's wife, then let my wife grind for another and let others bow down on her. You know, hey, if, I, if I've coveted anybody else's wife, then, then let mine be given to them. For that would be a heinous crime. That would be an iniquity to be punished by the judges. For that would be a fire that consumes as far as Abaddon, and it would burn to the root of all my increase." So, in other words, if I had done this thing, then I would deserve punishment de- determined by the judges, and, and it would be a fire that consumes as far as Abaddon. Abaddon would be hell. It would be Gehenna. It would be the place uh, where things burn. If I have rejected the cause of my manservant or my maidservant when they brought a complaint against me, what then shall I do when God rises up? When he makes inquiry, what shall I answer him? Did he who made did not he who made me in the womb make him and did want not one fashion us in the womb? He says, you know, if if I had a maidservant or a manservant who brought a case against me and complained against me, then then, and I did, failed to listen to him, then I would expect 
to pay a price for that because God made both of us. I'm no better than that person. We're both created human beings. If I've withheld anything that the poor desired or have caused the eyes of the widow to fail or have eaten my morsel alone and the fatherless is not eaten of it. For from my youth, the fatherless grew up with me as a father, and from my mother's womb, I guided the widow. If I've seen anyone perish for lack of clothing or the needy without covering, if his body has not blessed me, and if he is not warmed with the fleece of my sheep, if I have raised my hand against the fatherless because I saw my help in the gate, then let my shoulder blade fall from my shoulder and let my arm be broken from its socket. So he's recounting his own virtues. He's saying, I didn't I didn't do any of the things that I've just said. In fact, I've done the opposite of all those things. Therefore, this shouldn't happen. And why did he do those things? And now he's going to tell us in this last sentence. For I was in terror of calamity from God, and I could not have faced his majesty. So again, what we're seeing is is it's, it's a wonderful thing. It's the way that we should live our lives. We should live our lives with the understanding that we should have the fear of the Lord. Right? That's, that's a good thing. It's not something we outgrow, but it's the beginning place for wisdom. Because as we learn not just to fear him, but to love him, and we learn of his love for us, then we begin to do things from different motivations, and we probably are going to do them differently than if all we have is the fear of the Lord. He wants us to have more than just fear. He wants us to love him. He wants us to have the attitude toward his laws, for instance, that David did, and, and the, the, the desire, the, the uh, love for the law that inspired him to write Psalm 119, which has 176 verses, eight verses for every single letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and it's nothing more than an ode to the law, how perfect the law is, how much David loves the law. Now, did David keep it perfectly? Absolutely not. We know multiple occasions when David sinned with Bathsheba, with the census, with the way that he parented or didn't parent his children, and in other places as well. But, but David still loved the law and recognized that it was good, in spite of the fact that he didn't keep it perfect, perfectly. He acknowledged that the law was still right, and it was good. And, and so here what we get is Job saying, you know, that the reason I did all these things was because I was afraid not to do these things because they were part of God's law. And so it's not a love of the law. It's a fear of punishment that's driven him. And that's exactly what he says. I was in terror of calamity from God, and I could not have faced his majesty. Well, his worst nightmare came true. The calamities that Job experienced exceeded probably more than his worst nightmare. Although we know what that was. We know that it had to do, for instance, with his children, because every time they gave a party, Job made sacrifices for fear they had sinned against the Lord. And so, in other words, he's trying to appease God and make sure that they don't suffer punishment because of something they may have said or done during this party. So in the in the gospel today, remember that, that Mary and Martha had sent word that Lazarus was sick, and Jesus delayed in going and, and had this confusing conversation with his disciples about whether or not they should go to Judea and whether or not Lazarus was dead or whether he was just taking a nap and recovering or whatever. And so now, though, they have come after Thomas said, let's go with him and die. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Now, there's a Jewish belief that after three days, the soul abandons the body. It could resuscitate in three days, but, in, but by the end of the third day, there's no hope anymore. And so the soul abandons the body, and now uh, corruption sets in. 
Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. And so when he when it says many of the Jews, it, it's referring to Jews from Jerusalem. And remember, these are the ones who wanted to kill Jesus the last time that he was there. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. So she says that I know you could have healed him if you had been here, if you had come when we called you. You could have done something, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And, and she's not thinking you can bring him back from the dead. And we know that she's not thinking that because later when Jesus tells him to roll away the stone, Martha's the one who says, no, 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 by now he stinketh. So it, it, it's, we know that what she doesn't mean here is, is that I believe that you can bring him back. What, so what, what does she mean? She's saying this didn't diminish my faith in you. It may have caused me a little upset because it doesn't look like you love us very much because you didn't come when we called you, and now my brother's dead, and there's nothing you can do. No, she says, I've not lost faith in you, in your ability to do these things. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Now, that's a powerful, powerful statement there. I mean, that, that probably goes beyond everything that he has done and said before to claim that resurrection and life is in him. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you're the Christ, the Son of God, who's coming into the world. I believe all that. It's a large statement of faith. I mean, it really is. He, he, she, he, she's saying that I believe that you are the anointed one. You're the one that's been promised in the prophets, the one that was promised to David. I believe that's who you are. I do. That's a very different thing than saying I'm the resurrection and the life because that life then is in him, and he can give life, and he does give life. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, Mary, she rose quickly and went to him. They, they don't believe that Jesus is able to raise their brother from the dead. They believe that he's not only, in, in the words of the Wizard of Oz, he's not only merely dead, he's really most sincerely dead. There's, there's no hope any longer because there's no soul to be reunited with the body. Now, one of the things that, that, um, that I want to just sort of briefly bring up here and, and draw your attention to is there's a prayer on waking for, um, that Jews pray in the in the morning now i'm not saying everyone prays this because nothing is done by everyone Um, but there's a prayer upon waking in the morning um, that that gives thanks for the soul to be reunited with the body each morning Um, so it's this prayer called the moda ani which you're supposed to say every morning when you wake up thank God for keeping you alive. And so you're giving thanks for that, for that keeping alive and the restoration of the soul with the body because that's the there's a belief that that those two things separate during the during this time of sleep. 
um, I offer thanks to you, living and eternal King, for you have mercifully restored my soul within me. My, your faithfulness is great. So that's the prayer upon waking every day. And so that, that principle is here that, that says that there's only a certain amount of time that the soul will hang around waiting for the body to revive. And so that's exactly the source of that idea. So in the epistle, in, well, in the, in the book of the Acts, so we've got a problem, right? Because Paul has finished this missionary journey where he set out from Antioch, and, which is up in Turkey, and then went around to Lystra and Derbe and Perga and Pamphylia and Pisidian Antioch and all these other places. And then he loops back around, comes back through those same places, and goes back to Antioch. And then that's where we end. We, we, we're, they have celebrated the, the going forth of the gospel to the Gentiles and its reception by those Gentiles. And so now, though, but some men came down from Judea and, and were teaching the brothers, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you can't be saved. Certainly not a part of Paul's gospel. Nothing like that. It's not an action on your part. In order to do that, it's something that's done to you. Baptism, for instance, something done to you. So it, it's not something you do for yourself. This is something the Lord has done, everything necessary for salvation. And so that's exactly Paul's message. And now these have come from Judea, so from the region around Jerusalem, and they were teaching people, unless you're circumcised, you can't be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. Now remember that on the day of Pentecost, they asked what they had to do to be saved, and Peter says, repent and be baptized. And so who is he speaking to, though? He's speaking to Jews. So that time he's speaking to Jews. And so, But then he also did the same thing with Cornelius. Now did he... Did he Tell, what did he tell them? Were they part of the community, or were they still a separate part of the community? And this is a big question that had to be answered early on, because this, the, the co- sign of the covenant is circumcision. And so now has the uh, cross and baptism, has that replaced circumcision, is what people want to know. It, it seems right that you have to be circumcised. And I don't think this is a, well, we did it so you have to thing. I think it's just really trying to make an understanding of, of, of what has changed. You know, kind of what of the system has been changed by this whole uh, cross-resurrection ascension event. So after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about the question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. Those are places that were Gentile places. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said it's necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So what is it that we're going to require of Gentiles who become believers? And there's some who belong to the party of the Pharisees who said we've got to circumcise them and we've got to teach them to do all that Moses commanded. Now, that's not what Jesus said. What Jesus says, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded. Now, to the extent that, that, that they're keeping Jesus' commandments, they're also going to keep the law of Moses. 
but not the ceremonial law and not the dietary laws. This, those are not holiness laws so much as they are other things. Those ceremonial laws are done away with because that priesthood is done away with, and the dietary laws ha- have to be done away with in order for the Gentiles to be fully incorporated into the church. But the other things, the commandments about conduct of life, don't get done away with at this point. The, the distinction between Christian believers and Jewish believers it will, will be there to the extent that anybody insists on keeping the law of Moses, anybody insists on circumcision. But the, the distinction between Gentile believers and other Gentiles won't be the same as for, for the previous time when, when Jews were circumcised and they kept all the ritual ceremonial laws as well as dietary and other kinds of things. So it, it, there's a, not a blurring of the distinction. There's certainly not that. But, but what do we have to put on these people coming in? So the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider the matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. He's speaking about Cornelius. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? In other words, it's just too much. They can't do it. It it can't be the way of salvation because nobody kept it perfectly except Jesus. And now it has been kept perfectly. And so that can then, that, that freedom can now be given to others. He said, but we believe we'll be saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. In other words, what he's saying is you're adding things here that don't add to salvation. That, that salvation is by grace alone in Christ alone. By grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. You have faith. It's got to be in there. Um, and so that's what he's saying. That's how we're saved too. Even us, the apostles, the ones chosen by Jesus, we are saved by grace through faith in Christ Jesus. That's it. That's the formula. So why are we adding things to that? Why are we adding things to it that we couldn't even do? We still needed a Savior even though we had circumcision and the law. If we still needed a Savior, then why are we going to put things on them that, that are going to confuse them? And that's exactly what would happen. And what does happen is when we become legalists is we become confused about what saves us and what keeps us saved. So we're saved by grace, but we're not just saved by grace once. We're saved by grace constantly. We don't outgrow it. We don't become standalones at any point in time because we continue to sin because we're in the body. Whether we recognize it or not as sin, there's sin in our body. Whether that's pride, arrogance, and and we're not great judges of that. And so no matter if we thought we were free of sin, we would know we were not. We would know we were not. We would know that we don't understand holiness well enough to believe that we're, we're without sin. Jesus showed a different way. And, and Peter says it's always, always, always going to be about grace. It, it can't just be fear. And that's exactly what John's going to get at in 1 John when he talks about that perfect love casts out fear, and that fear has to do with judgment. It's the fear that Job said drove him 
in everything that he did. Well, there needs to be a better motive than that. There needs to be the motive of love, the same motive that brought Jesus to take on flesh and dwell among us, the same motive that had Jesus wait when Mary and Martha requested that he come to them in order that they could see a greater miracle and get a greater revelation. It's always, always, always only about grace.